We're taking two scripture readings this evening, the first of them in Mark's Gospel in the chapter 13, Mark's Gospel in the chapter 13, and the second one in Luke's Gospel and the chapter 21. So Mark's Gospel in the chapter 13 to begin with, and then also a reading from Luke's Gospel and the chapter 21. In Mark's Gospel, we commence our reading then at the verse 9, and the Word of God says, But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the Gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak. Neither do ye premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye. For it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son. And children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved." And then coming across to Luke's Gospel in the chapter 21, and here we read from the verse 12 of the chapter. But before all these, they shall lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts not to meditate before what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolks and friends, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But there shall not an hair of your head perish. In your patience possess ye your souls." Amen, ending our reading there at the verse 19. As we begin then to transition from a survey of what is the current themes and trends of our day, of our generation, to what saith the Scriptures as to what happens next, we come this evening to deal with one final reality that is, of course, right now at this moment being known by millions of God's people around the world, but one which I also firmly believe will be our reality too, in the not distant future. For tonight we deal with this subject, what saith the scriptures concerning the persecution of God's people? Persecution is defined as a campaign to exterminate, to drive away, or to subjugate people based on their religious belief, ethnic, social, or racial group. And so the reality of persecution has loomed large right down through the subsequent generations of this church age. Persecution was undoubtedly experienced by the disciples. In the immediate context of our readings this evening, the Lord is delivering a warning to his disciples of all that they themselves would face in the days in which they would take that gospel message and seek to preach it far and wide after they had, of course, received that power from on high. As we look at history, we see the record of how Matthew then was martyred in Ethiopia. 
How Mark was dragged by horses through Alexandria and Egypt until he died. How John was exiled to Patmos. How Peter was crucified upside down. How James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded. How Bartholomew was flayed to death. How Andrew was crucified, taking three days and all to fully expire. And during those three days, they got preaching the gospel to all who were gathered around. Jude was shot by a multitude of arrows. Barnabas was stoned to death. And Philip was also crucified. But as the ages continued, as the generations passed, we then progressed to a quick survey of church history. And here we come across names such as John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, William Tyndale, John Calvin, John Knox, John Bunyan, and John Wesley, all who suffered for their faith. Groups such as the Quakers, the French Protestants, the Dutch Protestants, and who, of course, could forget the cry of Hugh Latimer to Nicholas Ridley as together they were burnt at the stake for their faith in the middle of Broad Street in the city of Oxford. Be of good comfort and play the man, Master Ridley. We shall by this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that shall never be put out. What Hugh Latimer would make of gospel preaching today, one would dread to think. What he would make of Oxford today, indeed England today, one would dread to think. Because that light of which he spake, even as he suffered for the gospel's sake, is ever so dim. And believers right across the nation seem unmoved and unconcerned as to the extent of their apathetical attitude and their lack of desire to truly pick up the baton of gospel ministry and carry it boldly and proudly in this current day. We're coming to this current day and we know according to the recent watch list released by Open Doors that tonight 365 million Christians suffer high levels of suffering because of their faith. Now understand these statistics do not just represent evangelical Christians but rather any of those who take the title Christian. But nonetheless, they do provide accurate insight into the suffering of evangelical Christians also. And so tonight, 365 million Christians suffer because of their faith. That's one in seven across the world. 4,998 were murdered last year. That was 13 who suffered the death for their faith every day. 14,766 church buildings were attacked, and 4,125 Christians were imprisoned. And so all of these statistics, right up to this very current day, and of course, as we look back in church history, and as we note, of course, the fate of the disciples themselves, the apostles of the early church, they ever so clearly remind us of the truth that's foretold off here in the readings that we have taken this evening. You'll remember, of course, that our studies began by looking uh, the words recorded for us in Matthew's gospel in the chapter 24. And his account there of this same discourse, that discourse we refer to as the Olivet Discourse. 
And tonight, as we have looked here in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, and then also in Luke's Gospel, in the chapter 21, we do so not because of any inconsistencies, nor indeed any interpretive challenges presented, but rather because in both of these accounts, a more specific spotlight is shone on the realities to be expected by believers throughout the course of this church age. And indeed, all prior to the experiences prophesied as being part of the tribulation period. And so tonight, we look at this theme of persecution, and we identify it to be something that is ongoing in our world today, but also something that I believe we can very much expect to come our way also. Note here in Mark's Gospel in the chapter 13 and the verse 8, It says here, nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be earthquakes in divers places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Cast your mind back to the beginning of our studies, and we noted, of course, that that referred to us and reminded us then that we we find ourselves very much, of course, in the period that we refer to as the last of the last days. Now come to verse 9, and he says there, But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake. And then in verse 14, we come down to read these words, But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand, then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. So in verse 9 we see that as he remarks upon the reality of the last of the last days being known, the expectation that there will be believers alive in a time whenever worldwide conflict will have been known, whenever worldwide conflict is still being threatened, where there is an ongoing occurrence of earthquakes, where there are famines and pestilences experienced by the whole of humanity, then we can rightly identify that in those days, those believers are living in the last of the last days. And then as we come to the verse 14, we're dealing with a new reality, but when. It's all signified by those two words. It's all signified by the word then in the middle of the verse also when he says, then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. It denotes a new reality that is very much given to us here. It's not not merely the beginning of sorrows. It is now the actual travail. It's the days of Jacob's trouble that have arrived. We're not dealing with the birth pangs anymore. But just like the anxious couple come to the delivery suite and they have known the birth pangs emerging in the hours that have existed before their arrival, very soon as they enter into that delivery suite, the transition into the main event occurs and the woman is most certainly in travail. She knows it. Her body knows it. Undoubtedly everybody in the room knows it. And it all leads to a grand consummation. Hope is realized. A child is born. Rejoicing, uh, rejoicing begins. 
And that's what we're noting here. The birth pangs increase through the age until the last of the last days have arrived. These are the beginnings of sorrows. And then during those times, there will also be known what is afforded for us here in four verses from verse 9 down through verse uh, 13. Five verses, sorry, and all. Bringing us in to verse 14 where a new reality is identified. Suddenly, without further warning, the world is then in the midst of travail, the days of tribulation, which all lead, of course, to the inevitable conclusion, the grand consummation as the kingdom of our God and of his Christ is known here on earth. So we identify that here in Mark's gospel, denoted by the closing phrase of verse 8, the opening phrases of verse 14, we see the transition from one time to another. And allows us then to conclude that verses 9 through 13 deal with that which is to be expected by the people of God during the last of the last days. Come to Luke's account. And let's interrogate it for just a few moments also. The verse 7 of Luke's account asks the same question that was asked, of course, in Matthew's gospel as we looked at it in the opening weeks of our studies. Master, what shall the, when shall these things be? What sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? Look at verse 18. He said, take heed, or verse 8, sorry. And he said, take heed that ye be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Then he said unto them, Nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Great earthquakes shall be in divers places, famines, pestilences, fearful sights, and great signs shall there be from heaven. But before all of these. So identify what he's speaking of there. In those verses, verses 10 and 11, we see exactly the same terminology, the same themes related to us as we find in Mark's gospel, as we remember finding in Matthew's gospel also, testifying to the arrival of the time period that biblically is described as being the last of the last days. It describes for us then the course of the age with a particular focus here in Luke's gospel on the experience of the disciples themselves. Something we've already proven, how that they would be taken as men would lay hands on them, persecute them, deliver them up into synagogues, prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, and it shall turn to you for a testimony. The disciples knew persecution. But it also includes the period that we find ourselves in, the last of the last days. Allowing then the ground to be perfectly laid for the days of the drawing nigh of their redemption, which is related here in verse 28 of Luke's gospel. The visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ in great power and glory. And so in these passages, Mark's gospel particularly, but also in Luke's gospel, we have signified to us the reality that trouble, persecution, and affliction shall be known down through the course of the church age, beginning very particularly with the disciples, but continuing through the days until the great tribulation arrives. And then, of course, once more, the Jewish people find themselves as a very focal point of those days of sorrow. Now, we've sought to identify the period dealt with. But what's the substance of these verses themselves? 
In both accounts, you see clearly reference to persecution, trouble, and trial. These verses are about the last of the last days, and they contain then descriptions of events that continue to unfold in the days in which we live. Days in which, as the Lord tarries and is coming to the air, that you and I are to expect days of persecution. Now, some might say that's far-fetched. It's not exactly the reality of the times in which we live, for times have changed, attitudes have changed, laws have changed. We live in affluent, democratic societies. The taking of another's life is very much frowned upon, even by the state. The interference in one's personal rights is very much guarded against by law. The destruction and vandalism of one's property is a crime. And if you commit the crime, then of course you can expect to face the consequences. But is that really true? Because if you think, I suggest to you, if you think any or all of that is true... Well, please take me to the rock where you've been hiding under for the last 10 years. Particularly the last four. Because it must be nice to live there in a utopian environment and have such cozy thoughts about the world around you. Because if you think that, if you think that the actual manifestation of persecution could not be seen here in the Western world, yes, even here in lands under British control, you're deluded. And I go further to honestly say that if you think that the blood of Christians could not be one day spilt in the streets of Britain so callously and wantonly, as it has been far too often in previous generations, then you have fallen prey to the bewitching allurement of the world. You've been enticed into a doleful stupor, and tonight you're not heeding in any way the exhortation of the first two weeks of our study to watch and to watch and pray. Indeed, one who considers persecution to be a far-fetched reality that will never arrive at our doors nor never arrive at our shores is exhibiting what I sought to warn off the last two weeks. That somehow here in this generation, the church and the world can coexist together with little to no friction. But in doing so, they fail to recognize that the balance of power lies in the hand of the heathen, God-denying, Christ-rejecting government of our land. And don't be fooled for one moment, for we are not a one nation for all. We are not ruled by one nation Tories. We have the right to assemble here tonight, not because of some never-ending, never-to-be-changed decree, something akin to the law of the Medes and the Persians that must never be changed. No, rather we practice our faith as freely as we do because we are permitted to do so. But don't kid yourself that the master of sin could not and would not change everything in a moment. And all of our hard-won freedoms would be snatched away. And how do I know? Because the Bible tells me so. This is why, undoubtedly, that for months the efforts of this pulpit have been in building you, the flock of God, up 
on focusing all preaching efforts upon addressing the foundation upon which we as individual believers and we as an assembly of believers are built upon. Because the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 11 and the verse 3, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the answer is nothing. If the foundation is not up to the test, then we will flop and flounder just as a house that was built in sand. But if we focus our time and energy upon shoring up the foundation, on solidifying the foundation, then when persecution does come, then the righteous will not be destroyed, the righteous will not be swept away, but rather the righteous will be anchored upon that which never fails. You know, we're not unlike any other ministry that you could go to. There is fluff in this ministry. The add-ons that we engage ourselves in, the things that don't really matter, they'll all soon one day be swept away when even the whiff of persecution comes our way. But I tell you tonight that if we sort out our lives, if we walk close to God, if we ground ourselves in His Word, if we truly become a people of prayer, then when troubled days do come, then when the church buildings are attacked or vandalized, then when real suffering does come to your door and mine because we are part of this local assembly, when perhaps even a brother or sister here loses their life for the gospel's sake, even in such difficult days, the song of victory will still redound amongst us. The joy of the Lord will still radiate amongst us. And the cause of Christ will still be our focus and we will prevail in maintaining a gospel light. Oh, it will never come to that, you say. You're simply weaponizing prophecy. You're capitalizing on fears and anxieties. You're magnifying a certain theme because it suits your mission. Really? Just because our apathetical attitude has meant that we have become an ineffective force here in the UK. Just because as an army of God's people here in the United Kingdom we appear to be impotent and slothful in this hour does not mean we won't face persecution. Indeed, I would suggest that we are prime candidates for it. And I perhaps would lean on the side of hoping that we do see it because it might galvanize us. It might reinvigorate us. And it might allow us to truly prioritize that which is important again. Now one script, final scriptural proof for all of this is found in Matthew's Gospel in the chapter 24. We didn't take our reading there this evening because we sought to major in Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. Now the commentators largely agree that the primary focus of all of these accounts are upon the disciples and then subsequent to that Of course, the days of great tribulation to come. But there is an acceptance amongst the majority also 
that they do testify to the reality of the last of the last days. And that's what we're focusing on this evening. We're not disputing the realities of what the disciples face, nor indeed what the Jewish people then shall face in the days of great tribulation. But note here in Matthew's Gospel in the chapter 24 and the verse 29. It says, immediately, or sorry, for 24 in the verse 9. I was reading 29, but it's a verse 9. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted. Now remember, verse 8 has said to us, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Verse 9 then immediately goes on to say, them shall they deliver you up to be afflicted. Now this is a most excellent phrase. And when unpicked, it gives us an understanding of what the Lord is seeking to convey here. Now verse 8 testifies of that which we have already alluded to, the last of the last days have been arrived at. So then in verse 9, when he goes on to say then, he's identifying a moment in his program for the ages that is clear to see. A point in human history that can be looked at and interpreted without any shadow of a doubt that this moment has arrived. And remember, it's all based upon what we've already looked at in the verse 7. Worldwide war. Rumors of worldwide war. False prophets commonplace. Earthquakes, regular occurrences, famines and pestilences experienced by all humanity. Then, the Lord says, shall they. And what do they do? Then shall they deliver you up. Word deliver you up here is taken, or the phrase, sorry, deliver you up here is constructed of the Greek word paradidomai. And this is used to describe also the actions and intents of Judas. The one who betrayed the Lord, the one who made a calculated decision to reject Christ. And so it communicates a purposeful, intentional decision, a prevailing attitude amongst the people of the world to hand the people of God over to suffer affliction. What does that look like? It's a deliberate removal of all that prohibits such behavior. It's the identification of those to be afflicted. Those are all things that we see in the account of Judas delivering up the Lord to be crucified. He purposefully engineered the circumstances whereby those who sought, his, sought him would be able to find him. And then coming into the garden, remember, he intentionally then singled out the Lord and identified him by kissing him. And the soldiers knew he's the one. And so this delivering up includes then a removal of all that prohibits such behavior and an identification of those to be afflicted. And as we also see from Judas, it can also take on the appearance of profiteering and reveling in such a choice. He had silver in his pocket, jingling away as he laid the kiss on the Lord. And remember, the Lord's being delivered up led to ultimate suffering. 
there upon Calvary's cross, but of course preceded by those awful hours in Praetorium, by the carrying of the cross of wood upon his broken back, upon the ignominy of being mocked and derided, spat upon and derobed. And so too, the communication is here given to us that as the delivering up of God's people shall occur at the la- in the last of the last days, affliction will be known, death will be known, hatred will be known, all for the sake of the gospel. Now Matthew's focus as he continues is entirely upon the days of tribulation that will soon be known. But it is in the opening phrase of this verse 9 that we have identified to us that in the knowledge of these days arriving, they are preceded by evident birth pangs of that which is to come. And at an identifiable moment when the world at large turns against the people of God, yes, including those of Jewish descent, but also undoubtedly the church of Jesus Christ prior to their removal from the earth. And so, yes, no bones about it. The thrust of all the teaching that's found here in Matthew's gospel is undoubtedly with the days of great tribulation in view, the fiercest of the persecution and affliction that will be known by the Jewish people themselves. But also, I do believe, we too here are being reminded that preceding that, persecution and affliction will come to our door as the world is delivered up to tribulation. And so this is in keeping with what we read of in the record of the gospel writers. It's in keeping with the words of our Lord and the Mount of Olives. It's in keeping indeed with the teaching of Paul that we've already referenced in our studies when in 2 Timothy 3 in the verse 3 he describes the characteristics of the men on earth during the last of the last days as being truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. And this all leads him to issue a further warning in verses 12 and 13. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so what saith the Scriptures as we shift our focus to consider what can be anticipated in the days to come? I believe it communicates this message. Prepare for persecution. Now, if you're still minded to dismiss it, I suggest that's not a product of sound exegesis. Rather, it's a byproduct of the comfortableness, compromise, and apathy, which is a characteristic of the church of Jesus Christ today. And so I urge you to prepare. And this preparation is not seen in building bunkers. It's not seen in stockpiling goods. It's not seen, indeed, in making preparations or plans that will help us in some way avoid persecution or trouble when it comes our way. No, this preparation is known in a spiritual sense. And remember, the sentiments that we, and the exhortation that we shared at the very beginning of our studies, there is no profit in predicting, but there is much profit in being prepared. I honestly don't know when it will come. I don't know what it will look like. I don't know to what degree it will involve the governments of our day or the forces of our day. I don't know to what extent we will suffer either individually or corporately. But I do want us to be prepared. Be prepared for such a time. 
Be prepared, yes, even prepared for the very worst of the potential manifestations of persecution amongst us. I want us to be able to say like Paul that our doctrine, our manner of life, our purpose, our faith, our long-suffering, our charity, and our patience has left us prepared for such days. And when such days arrive, then we too can testify, just like he could, that out of them all, the Lord will deliver us. And so the scriptures say, prepare for persecution. How can we be prepared? How can we ensure that we are best placed to prevail and to overcome? When we ministered in England, we lived in a little village just outside of Bromsgrove in the West Midlands. Bromsgrove was the birthplace of John Flavel. In 1628, he was born into a home in which his father also was a preacher, but he died as a result of the great plague. John grew to know the Lord and to love the Lord, and very soon it was evident that he was exceptionally gifted in preaching and teaching God's Word. Indeed, as one member of his congregation recorded, he said, I could say much, though I could never say enough of the excellency of his preaching of his seasonable, suitable, and spiritual matter, of his plain expositions of Scripture, of his talking method, of his genuine and natural deductions, of his convincing arguments, of his clear and powerful demonstrations, of his heart-searching applications, of his comfortable supports to those that were afflicted in conscience. In short, I would say that any person must have had a very soft head or a very hard heart, or both, that could sit under his ministry unaffected. Truly, he was a man of God. But as a result of his ministry in a Presbyterian church in Dartmoor, many lives were changed. Many souls were converted. But then came 1662. If you know anything about 1662, you'll know that it was, of course, a time whenever the government decreed that one could not minister nor preach except they were registered officially with the state and under the auspices of the state church. That led to many being branded as nonconformists. This included Presbyterians, it included Methodists, it included Baptists, it included Plymouth Brethren, it included Puritans, it included Quakers. It included men that you might know like Matthew Henry, Isaac Watts, John Bunyan. But John Flavel was one who wouldn't conform. And so he found himself ejected from public ministry. This all forced him to preach in private. He would preach in people's houses. He would preach in people's barns. He'd preach even in outdoor locations such as forests and beaches, sometimes preaching to hundreds in the middle of the night simply to avoid being detected. He was, of course, then a target because of all of this, and the soldiers of the day hunted him very zealously. And at various times, they did him physical harm. But John Flavel also hadn't an easy life of his own to live. He suffered many tragedies within his family. Two wives died during the course of his ministry, and some of his children also perished. 
But as he reflected on his personal grief and suffering, as he reflected on the church's grief and suffering during the days of his ministry, here's what he wrote about it all. He said, prepare for a storm, dear child of God, and provide for yourself an ark, a hiding place in Christ and in his promises. Tonight, our theme has been about preparing for a storm. And so tonight, it is our focus then to find that ark prepared for us that we too might shelter within. And so what saith the Scriptures as to how we can prepare for days of persecution? We'll come to 1 Peter in the chapter 3. 1 Peter in the chapter 3. And here we find the ark, I believe, prepared for us for such times. As we anticipate such times, as we prepare for such times, as we seek to build upon a firm foundation and to shore up our foundation, ensuring that it is in the very best condition possible. Let's read together from the verse 12 of 1 Peter in the chapter 3. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But, and if, ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. The nugget of truth that we leave with you this evening and we seek to provide for you as an ark that you might be and that we together might be better prepared for days of persecution to come is found for us at the beginning there of verse 15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. In the last of the last days, we're to watch. In times of geopolitical upheaval, we're to watch and pray. In times of economic instability, we're to trust in the Lord. In times of social chaos, we're to continue thou and the things which thou hast learned. In times of spiritual apathy, we are to stand fast. In days when gospel preaching is missing and neglected, we are to know him. And tonight, in days when we must prepare for persecution, God's word exhorts us then to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. The word sanctify means to set apart, means to make holy, to treat or to regard with reverence. And how absent that all is from the current expression of Christian faith known in the Western world today. It seems true that by and large, believers only really sit up and take note of that which they're obligated to do when suffering is known, when persecution is faced, when days of hardship are experienced, when our backs are against the wall. Then and only then it seems that believers take the time to take stock and prioritize that which is essential. 
But here God's word is encouraging us before such days are known, before such times are experienced, take stock now. Prioritize now that which is essential, that which is needful, and sanctify God in your heart. Remove every other idol. Remove every other object of your affection and ensure God and God alone is set apart in your heart and in your life. Remember what we said about fluff? Every ministry has it. But so too all of our lives. There are many things, good things, worthy and noble things. But they take up our time. They consume our energy. And ultimately, they fill our hearts and our lives to such an extent that the meaningful and absolutely necessary truth of worshiping God is so absent from our lives. And this means that despite the exhortation of Scripture last week, we never really get to know Him. And because we don't know Him, then our service for Him is barren and dry. Our hearts resemble a desert place. They're starved of the water of His Word. They're barren from a lack of fruit and nourishment. Tell me tonight, when was the last time you truly worshipped the Lord? When was the last time that you sat at His feet and received that which only ever is the balm to your soul? When was the last time you were so saturated in your heart and your mind with His words of truth and love? When was the last time that you allowed yourself not to be overwhelmed with life, but rather to be overwhelmed in the knowledge of His love, of His mercy and His grace? When was the last time that you looked not at your burdens and your problems, but rather looked full on his wonderful face and allowed the things of earth to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace? Dear troubled soul tonight, dear burdened soul tonight, dear believer anxious about tomorrow tonight, Dear troubled believer full of regret about yesterday, when was the last time that you heeded his invitation to come aside, to rest a while, to sit at his feet, and to be at peace? Is it not worth putting down the phone? Is it not worth shutting off the TV? Is it not worth saying no to the party invitation? Is it not worth stepping back from the busyness of life, the busyness of family, yes, even the busyness of ministry, and sanctifying the Lord in your heart? You and I do suffer. Many troubles, many trials, many hard days. Many difficult seasons. And yes, has been the th- yes, as has been the theme this evening, you and I will suffer, I firmly believe it. But God's word is reminding us here, 
don't let suffering be the reason that we reassess our lives. Don't let suffering be the reason that we prioritize the needful over the necessary. Rather, do it now. Prepare to suffer now by putting God first. Prepare by ensuring that he alone sits on the throne of your heart. Because I tell you, if you do that, you will enjoy success in suffering and you will persevere in persecution. Look how Peter describes it here in the verses 15 through 17. As you sanctify the Lord God in your heart, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Your witness will be more effective. As we prepare, we will know more clearly that which is necessary in life and worship. And we will undoubtedly witness better of our Lord. We'll be able to testify without any of the fluff as to the true reason why we love him and why we are assured that nothing in this world will ever take us from his hand. Our witness will be more effective. But look at verse 16. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Not only will our witness be more effective, but our testimony will be more effectual. I wonder tonight, would our lives, would the testimony of our lives be so consistent with the profession of our faith that it would be unquestionable? As we put Christ first in our lives, we can guarantee that it will our testimony will be more effectual. But notice in the verse 17, for it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Our suffering will be more credible. Undoubtedly, and I say this gently, but undoubtedly there are those who profess to suffer and do suffer but it's all self-inflicted. The Bible here and what we're preparing for here is that which we have never invited nor never left the door open to because of our own lack of discernment and lack of willingness to abide by the Word of God. But as we prepare and as we put God first, and as that's evident in our witness and our testimony, then our suffering will be more credible. Is there evidence of this that we can learn from the past? Absolutely. Let's come back to one of the apostles, one of the disciples. James, the son of Zebedee was, of course, one of the disciples together with his brother John, whom the Lord referred to as the sons of thunder. But about a decade after Stephen had been martyred for his faith, 
Herod Agrippa came to be governor of Judea. Yes, the very same Herod Agrippa who said to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. But seeking to make a name for himself, Herod Agrippa began a very harsh campaign of persecution against the Christians of the first century church. And his focus was especially upon the leaders. He thought that if he could take out the leaders, he would snuff out the witness. And so James was taken. And during the days of his trial, he was imprisoned under the care of a particular Roman soldier. This Roman soldier watched James as he, without fear or care, went through these days. He heard James pray in the cell. And he was present when James sought to give an answer for himself before his accusers, knowing full well that there was no chance of any pardon. As his trial came to an end, the sentence was delivered. It was a sentence of death by beheading. And this same soldier led James outside to where the judge would then reread the sentence of death and the execution would take place. But it was at this point, at this very place, that overcome by conviction, this Roman soldier turned to the judge, announced his own faith in Jesus Christ, James's Savior, got down on his knees and put his head on the same block and together they were beheaded for their faith. Was James more effective in witness? Absolutely. Was he more effectual in testimony? Absolutely. Was his suffering more credible? Absolutely. And I tell you, I want to live like that. And I hope you do too. But we can only do so as we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. That way we will be prepared for anything. And if the Lord wills, we will enjoy success and suffering. And we will persevere in persecution. May God bless his word to our hearts tonight.